I ask you to please stand now for the reading of this morning's scripture, which will be Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if he, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You may be seated. Good morning once again. All praise be to God who has kept us, who has protected us, and who has blessed us this past week. And He has done so for each and every one of us, whether or not we have had the eyes to see it or the wisdom to recognize His care. Let us worship Him this morning, continue to worship Him with thankful hearts, with a zeal to find joy increasingly and find our satisfaction increasingly in His kingdom and in His righteousness and not in the fading things of this world. May we learn to recognize what God is doing in His church and find hope and peace in that work that God is doing celebrating his faithfulness and his abundant blessings to his children. The world around us may be going mad, yet God has not changed. In an ever-changing and chaotic world, find your peace and your security in the unchanging God. He is making all things new. He is for us. And he will bring us into the blessed hope that has been secured for us in Christ. Well, this morning in our, in our continuation of studying the Sermon on the Mount, we will see a shift in theme in Jesus' instruction from that of judgment that we have been discussing for the past few weeks back to prayer. Some commentators have said that uh, this section, so Matthew 7, verses 1 through 11, are discussing our terms, and, um, are discussed in terms of the believer's relationships. So, first in the verses 1 through 5, in the believer's relationship one with another, how we are not to have hypocritical judgments one, one to another, holding others to a standard that we do not hold ourselves to or picking out and being overly critical of the problems and issues with someone else and ignoring those of our own. Verse 6 described Christians' relationship with those who are outside the church, those who Jesus labeled as the dogs and the pigs. Christians were to exercise godly wisdom as they labored to bear witness of the gospel of Christ among the unbelieving world, that not everybody will be ready to hear. And the Christian must be able to know when and where to devote their energy and how to share the treasures of the kingdom of heaven. Then in verses 7 through 11, which is our focus this morning, describing, describes the relationships that the Christians ought to have with God, their heavenly Father, especially as it relates to prayer. Well, this passage should remind us of some familiar themes that we have seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Primary among them is the major theme in which a, which a Christian ought to approach God, the manner in which a Christian ought to approach God. That the Christian is to be diligently seeking God's kingdom, diligently seeking His righteousness. That the Christian is to, to look to God as the supply of all of their needs. Just remember from Matthew 6, 9 through 14 and 25 through 34. Jesus routinely taught his disciples that if they followed him, then they were known by God and cared for by God. 
that if they were in Christ, then God heard them when they called to him. That God understood their needs and he was willing and able to provide for them. One of the most consistent elements of Jesus' teaching on prayer is that his disciples could have an absolute rock-steady confidence that God did hear them. That God would not turn a deaf ear to their cries. That God would not forsake them. Our passage this morning benefits from the teaching that Jesus has already given concerning how Christians are to pray, what they are to pray, what they are to pursue in their lives. This passage adds or expands on a critical element that guides the Christian's approach to prayer. That in prayer, they approach their Father in heaven. And that God can be expected to respond as a loving father ought to respond to the cares and the cries of his children. Of course, as we continue, we'll have to deal with the fact that our understanding of the character of God has everything to do with how we approach him. As does our understanding of the nature of fatherly care. But before we continue more, I ask you to join me in prayer. Father, I ask that you would give us clarity of thought, that you would give me clarity of thought and of speech, that you give those listening clarity of of thought and open ears to hear. Protect those who will hear from misunderstanding or the speaker from misspeaking in a way that would do damage to our understanding of your character, of your nature, or that would do damage to our understanding of your loving care as our Heavenly Father. Through these words, may we better understand who you are. May we better understand how you have loved us, how you continue to love us. Teach us to see everything that we need in your hands. Teach us to reject anything that would draw us somewhere else. Father, be gracious to us. We are weak. We are fragile. We are slow to understand. But you are great, you are mighty, you are wise, and you are powerful to save. Ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. What comes to your mind when you think of fatherly care? Many of us in this room have been blessed to have good examples of fatherhood in our lives, yet I'm sure that we are increasingly aware that those positive examples of fatherhood are the exception, not the rule. As a nation, we are seeing the effects of the lack of good fathers anchoring safe and solid families, churches, and communities. There are countless children being raised without a father or a father figure. The whole idea of masculinity and fatherhood has long been thrown around as the butt of jokes in advertisements or on sitcoms. We have a culture that has been drastically changed by a radical agenda orchestrated to undermine and reject biblical manhood. We have seen the results of this breakdown in biblical masculinity with the shattering of the family across all demographics. With the loss of biblical manhood and womanhood, we have seen the trivialization of marriage resulting in broken homes everywhere you look. This massive cultural change has facilitated the murder of tens of millions of the preborn. It has resulted in the hubris 
of people attempting to redefine what marriage is, to include relationships that are an abomination to our God. And now finally, as the natural conclusion to all this this chaos, to all this, this lack of a foundation, we have seen this cultural change result in confusion surrounding gender, identity, and sexuality. Of course, we cannot lay all the blame strictly at the feet of feminist activists because they or anybody else who has been a part of this radical agenda that has reshaped our culture would have not been able to affect any kind of this mass change without men in mass laying down their God-given responsibilities to take hold of these promised rewards where men were designed to set vision, to take dominion, to anchor families and protect those under their charge, they learned that if they simply abandoned those roles, they could gorge themselves on the sort of trivial or base desires that their hearts could imagine. They stopped setting vision. They stopped taking dominion. They stopped caring for and protecting those who needed their love and attention. Society and the states adapted to the change, stepping in and assuming authority that it was never designed to have and that it is always ill-equipped to handle. Now any vestiges of real masculinity are labeled toxic and dangerous. Real men, biblical men, have been replaced by soft, effeminate, perpetual children who no longer can fathom the greatness that they were created for in this world. But why am I talking so much about the downfall of fatherhood in our culture? If you look at our text this morning, you will realize that it is not primarily concerned with masculinity and fatherhood, but with prayer. Well, I mentioned the downfall of fatherhood this morning because prayer, because our ability to ask of God and to trust in His willingness to give what we need is directly tied to His fatherhood of all who believe. The wonder and beauty of our ability to approach God with confidence and joy is secured by the relationship we enjoy with Him as His children. The more that we neglect the proper notion of fatherhood, the harder it will be for us to understand the relationship that we have with the Heavenly Father. And it will damage our ability to come before Him to be able to expect good things from Him. The fatherhood of God to all who truly follow Christ has been an essential part of Jesus' teaching throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We cannot properly understand our relationship with Christ until we understand His relationship with the Father. And then in Christ, our relationship with the Father. It may be hard for us to get an accurate picture of what fatherhood is supposed to look like in this culture where it has all but disappeared, but we are not left totally in the dark. Scripture shows us how God behaves towards His children. It shows us how He patiently cares for them, how He blesses them, how He lovingly corrects and disciplines them. Well, even if we lack many good examples around us of biblical masculinity, of biblical fatherhood, we at least have some idea what we know it's not supposed to look like. We know what it isn't. Even if we don't really know what good fathers do, we have learned a lot of what we've seen around us to understand what a good father would not do. Jesus in our passage this morning relied on the picture of fatherhood to illustrate how God's children are to approach Him in prayer. 
We must, therefore, keep in mind that when he addresses fatherly care, he is addressing fatherly care as it ought to be, as it is displayed by God, and not as we have seen it become a train wreck in society around us, not the mockery that the world has made of it. A father's care for his children belong, begins long before his children are born. It begins before he is even married. It has its origins in his willingness to order his life and to labor so that he will have the skill and the means to be a faithful father. Before he can provide vision and care for his family, he must learn to do so for himself. He provides direction and structure in which his wife can flourish in her God-given role. Together they bring children into the world who will be cared for, who will be instructed, who will be disciplined, so that they will be equipped to go forth and fulfill their calling in this world as godly men and women. A godly father seeks after God so that he will have the wisdom in which to disciple his family, the wisdom in which to lead his family in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Thankfully, even though few now could even recognize this sort of godly man, husband and father, there remains enough of an impression on our hearts about what fatherly care should be, about the fatherly care that the fatherless long for, that we can work through this passage together. In our passage, Jesus makes a very bold promise. A promise that if we are not careful, we will misinterpret and damage our spiritual lives and our gospel witness. If we were to take the promise of verses 7 and 8 and isolate it, and fail to hold it against the light of the rest of Scripture, we could hurt ourselves and others. Separated from the light of Scripture, these verses could be said to encourage praying for anything and everything we may desire even if those desires are sinful or idolatrous. That even God, then, even then, He must give it to us. These verses could be used and have been used to tell people that the only reason they don't have what they desire is that they have not asked correctly, that they have not sought it out sufficiently, or that they have not knocked hard enough on the door. Of course, this promise of Christ is great, it is expansive, yet it is neither universal nor is it unbounded. The first question you must ask is, to whom is this promise made? Who is Jesus promising that their requests will be granted? That the things sought for will be obtained and that the doors that are knocked on will be opened? That question is answered partially in the context and partially elsewhere in Scripture. In the immediate context, we can see that Jesus is making this promise to those to whom God is their Father. It's not a universal claim to all men, all times, everywhere. It's to those who call upon God as Father. Scripture is clear that God is not Father to all men, but only to those who believe. John 1, 12 and 13 and 8, 44. The promise that God as Father will hear and respond to prayer is made only to His children. There is no such promise made for those who are asking, seeking, and knocking who do not believe. Of course, this promise for answer prayer is even more specific than that. The promise of request being granted is for those children who are obedient, faithful in what they desire and what they seek after. Turn with me quickly to 1 John 3, 21 through 24. 
James, 1st and 2nd Peter, and then 1st John 3, 21 through 24. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, in God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. There is a direct correlation or connection between our obedience to Christ and our abiding in Christ. Since our connection with the Father in heaven is directly dependent on our relationship with Christ, it is no wonder that His response to our prayer would be tied to the relationship of our heart and prayer with the heart and the desires of Christ. If we, abiding in Christ, pray in obedience to Christ, desiring those things that He desires, and seeking after those things that He has commanded us to seek after, we can have full confidence that God will grant us everything that we desire. However, if our prayers and our desires are set against the desires and the pleasures of Christ, we can have no such confidence. It is a simple matter of God only giving good gifts to His children. When we ask for good gifts, He delights in giving them to us. When we ask for something else, well, we will see. In our passage this morning, we see three calls to action. Ask, seek, knock. There is an expectation of active persistence in the Christian's approach to God. Ours is not a faith that can be simply passively accepted and idly assumed. Christ taught his disciples that they were to be active in their belief. If they truly believed, they would act on that belief. They were not called to merely mentally acknowledge who Jesus is. Even the demons would do that. Or to merely acknowledge what he had done for them. They were called to follow and to obey. True faith is one that comes with repentance where the believer turns away, actively turns away from the things of this world and turns to actively pursue Christ. Yes, we do proclaim a God who is absolutely sovereign over everything in His creation. Even so, He has determined to use means and to make us partakers of His work in His creation. There is no contradiction between the claim that all of salvation is of God and the command to follow and obey, to ask, to seek, and to knock. These three calls to action carry individual significance in how we pray, but they all speak of our approaching God in prayer. They convey the earnestness in which we should pray. Beloved, prayer is not some empty or useless ritual. It is the means by which we seek everything that we need from the hand of our Father. Ask. Present your wants and your burdens to God. Ask as someone who genuinely needs an answer. Ask as one who recognizes that God can and will provide our daily bread. Seek. And as we have already been commanded, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek after it. Strive after it. Use all the means at your disposal to pursue and to take hold of the reign of Christ on this earth. Live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. 
and knock. Tirely knock at the door. Tirelessly knock at the door as one who is desperate to be admitted. It is one who desires to to converse and to commune with Almighty God. With Him there is abundance. With Him there is hope. With Him there is peace. Knock and knock again as though you believe that sure death awaits anybody who is not admitted into the presence of our God. Ask, seek, knock. We must pray and we must join our prayer with our efforts and our use of the ordinary means of grace around us. And we will, by the promise of Christ, receive, find, and have the door opened. But what does that kind of relentless pursuit look like? We can look at a couple of illustrations that Jesus gave us to show what it means to ask, to seek, to knock, to be persistently in prayer. Flip over a couple of books to Luke chapter 18. Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, chapter 18, verses 2 through 8. In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Or we can look to Luke's companion passage to ours from the Sermon on the Mount this morning. He gives a little bit more of an introduction to this teaching. Turn back in Luke, a couple pages to Luke 11, verses 5 through 10. And he said to them, which of you, when a friend who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are in with me, with me and in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence. He will arise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For whoever asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. And through the one who knocks, it will be opened. So we see this principle of persistence. Even if someone has no desire to give what has been requested of them, even if they don't even have a positive orientation towards the person who is asking from them, they will give what is requested if it is asked with great enough persistence. Simply to give them some peace from the disturbance. If even an unrighteous man can be compelled to give assistance by the persistence of one who is powerless to make any claim against him, then certainly God will respond to the persistence of his elect, whom he has from all eternity set his loving kindness upon. We can have the assurance that our loving Heavenly Father will hear us and will care for us. We can surely expect more from our Heavenly Father than we would expect of our earthly fathers. But we should never expect less. 
Think about the language of Christ's promise in our passage. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. This is more than simply letting your requests be made known to God. This is an all-out pursuit and an obsession with that which we desire most. There are specific life situational needs that we can and should lift up to God in prayer. That each day as we face new trials, new challenges, we ought to lift those up to God in prayer. We ought to throw them down at the feet of our Savior, knowing that He cares for us. Yet even those requests that do change day by day should flow comfortably with the constant cry of our hearts to God for our daily bread. Our cry to God to give us what I need for this day, to give me wisdom, to give me greater faith, to bring about the expansion of the kingdom of heaven in this land. These are prayers that are made and repeated and ought to continually reside on our lips. These are things that we can pray for, no matter how greedily and persistently we ask for them, that God will always be pleased to answer them. You'll always be pleased by the pursuit and eager to respond. There are many things that we desire that may be in God's will, but then again, maybe they are not. It may be that we will get into the school that we desire to go to. It may be that we will get the job that we want or get the promotion that we feel that we need. It may be that we will marry the person we want to marry or that we will conceive the child we desire. But then again, it may not be God's will. It may be perfectly honoring for God to give us these things that we desire, Yet it may be his good desire not to give them to us. That maybe those things we think are for our good ultimately would bring about our ruin. There are many things that are fine to desire, yet we must not become obsessed with them to idolize them. We don't actually know if they would ultimately be for our good or for our harm. Only God knows. As I said before, there are other things that it is impossible to desire too greatly. Things that we know for certain are God's desire for His children. Things that we can pray for confidently. Philippians 4.8 Finally, my brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 1 Timothy 6.11, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Hebrews 12.14, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what kind of things can we pursue with, with as though reckless abandon? What things can we pursue without having to worry about the measure in which we pursue them, confident that God will give what we ask? Whatever is true, honorable, pure, and lovely. We can pray for more of the fruit of the Spirit of God to be displayed in our lives. 
that we would have more love, more joy, more peace, more kindness, more goodness, more faithfulness, more gentleness, more self-control. We should always seek greater faithfulness, godliness, and perseverance. We should always seek and ask for and knock that we might receive sanctification and peace in the Lord. The very same things that Christ has set out for us in the Sermon on the Mount that will mark His true disciples. These things we cannot pursue too greedily. There is no way that we can desire God's kingdom and God's righteousness too much. We may be able to mistake something, something of the flesh, as though it is something of God, but we cannot pursue God too greatly. Jesus has promised us that if we ask our Father in heaven for these things, He will give them to us. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Eagerly ask, seek, and knock, because you will receive, find, and enter in. Calvin wrote that nothing supplies greater motivation to pray than a full conviction that we will be heard. How much more since we have the promise that we will not only be heard, but that we will receive, that we will find, that we will enter in. What but a faulty view of ourselves and a faulty view of the character of God could keep us from fervent and persistent prayer. Prayer is the ordinary means through which the Father is pleased to care for the needs of His children. In the Sermon on the Mount, we have already been taught that we must not live with anxiety because God has the power to meet our needs, He cares about our needs, and He knows about our needs. Even so, we are told to pray and let our needs and desires be known to God. So you may ask, what is the purpose of praying if God already knows what we need? Well, among other reasons we could no doubt think of, we pray although God already knows what we need, and has every ability to give us our desires and our needs, even if we didn't ask, because it serves to keep us from folly and idolatry. What do I mean by that? God has designed things such that the normal order of things is that we approach Him for those things that we need. We approach Him with our burdens. We approach Him with our concerns. That does not mean that he will never bless or never do anything good for his children unless they have brought it before him. But this is his ordinary design. Under this structure, two very important things happen. Number one, we are protected from believing that we are self-sufficient, thereby falling into folly. If God simply gave us everything that we desired and, and we needed, we would think that we were doing all right on our own. We would not recognize where it had come from. And the second thing is that it keeps us from idolatry of offering praise somewhere else other than God. It, it protects us from idolatry, that we go to God in prayer and then He gives us those things that are good for us. It forces us to recognize where these things are coming from to give glory to God from whom all our needs are met. If nothing provides greater motivation to pray than the confidence that we will be heard, then where does that confidence come from? What is the foundation of our confidence that God will hear? Jesus promised that God will grant his request to his children because he is their father. Because it is in the nature of a father to give his children what is needed and desired. 
A father desires to give good things to his children. That is why it is important that we understand, that we have a concept of what a godly father looks like. That is why it is important we have an accurate understanding of God's character, of the the nature of God. James Montgomery Boyce wrote that if a young man wants to ask his father for something, he will pattern his request on the nature and the temperament of his father. If the father is ill-tempered and stingy, the young man will ask for little. He will take great care to present his need in the most winsome way, in an unobjectionable manner. If the father is good-natured and generous, the child will present his need openly and with great confidence. It is the same spiritually. If a man prays, he will pray in harmony with his view of the God to whom he is praying. No matter how twisted a picture of fatherhood that many of us have been exposed to in this world, we still understand that a true father loves and cares for his children. A true father desires the welfare and the happiness of his children. When we see abuse and neglect, we know instinctually that this is not how a father is supposed to behave. That if a child is not safe and protected with their father, we see that and we recognize there is something terribly wrong with that situation. There remains amid all the confusion of this age, a remnant imprint of God's design for fatherhood on the hearts of all men. Without realizing why, people have a sense of the disorder of what they see around them. You often hear people who have had a a failure for a father say things like, that man was no father to me, or I never really had a father. Jesus points to the common understanding of what a father should do for his children when he said, or which one of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We see the word evil here. We're talking comparatively to the nature of God. We're not talking about the most abominable men you could imagine, the most evil tyrants that our minds can remember. We're talking about sinful, frail, broken humanity. Even a simple, imperfect, poor choice-making father does not intentionally neglect the rightful requests of his child. If it is in his power, he will give his child what he thinks is good for them. It is unthinkable that he would withhold what what is needed, or even worse, that he might mock or give his child something dangerous instead. A stone may look like a loaf of bread, but even a sinful father knows that it will not satisfy the needs of the child. He would not trick his child that way. A snake may resemble a fish, yet even a sinful father would realize that it would do harm to the child rather than satisfy their needs. And he would not intentionally harm his child when they ask for help. We must assume in relationship to the wicked father that the opposite is also true. If the child asks for something that is harmful, that even a a sinful, wicked father will withhold it and risk the child's disappointment rather than giving them something that will cause them hurt or loss. For good or for ill, According to his best understanding and wisdom, even poor examples of fatherhood will give their children what they think is best for them. If that much can be expected even from an imperfect, sinful father, how much more can be expected from our God, who is our Father in heaven, who is the perfect realization of what it means to be father? 
A human father may make a mistake. A human father may think that something is good for their child when it actually harms them. But God sees all things. God knows every implication. He knows every possibility. He knows beyond doubt what is good and what is not for his children. And he only gives them what is good. God knows how to give good gifts, and he desires to bless his children. God also knows what is not good for us, and he faithfully withholds many things that we think are good for us in order that he might bring about our greatest purpose and greatest good to sanctify us, to make us like Christ, to save us from his fiery judgment. I have no doubt that we can all think of things that we have begged and pleaded that God would grant us. Things that we thought were absolutely necessary. Things that we were sure were good for us. Things that we didn't receive. Can you be at peace, trusting by faith that God knows better than us and that God has our good in mind? Can you trust him even when we don't get to understand in this life the big picture and the wise? When we pray according to the will of God, we know beyond doubt that our prayers will be answered and our requests granted. When we don't know what God's will is, We simply pray that God's will will be done as he taught us in the model prayer. Or when we don't have the words, his spirit will give voice to what we cannot express. Turn with me to Romans 8, 26 and 27. John, Acts, and then Romans. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Often we do not pray according to the will of God, And we do not pray in obedience to Christ or in accordance with the pursuit of his kingdom. In either case, whether we pray rightly or wrongly, what and how we pray reveals a great deal about the condition of our hearts. What a person desires and prays for can be very revealing as to whether that person is truly a child of God. How we pray reveals how we see God, what we believe to be true about him. D.A. Carson wrote, What is fundamentally at stake is a person's picture of God. God must not be thought of as a reluctant stranger who can be cajoled or bullied into bestowing his gifts or as a malicious tyrant who takes vicious glee in the tricks he plays, or even as an indulgent father who provides everything requested of him. He is the heavenly father, the God of the kingdom, who graciously and willingly bestows the good gifts of the kingdom in answer to prayer. How we pray reveals what we value. How often do you pray for more of the fruit of the Spirit? How many have prayed against the Spirit's fruit, particularly like things like patience, actually prayed against those things that we know biblically are good for us because we fear that we would receive them in a painful way? Is that the attitude that a Christian ought to have when they approach their loving Father in heaven? 
Is that how little the Christian ought to value the fruit of God's spirit? Think of how we spend the majority of our effort and time in prayer. And consider what that says about what you truly value. If we truly desire something in this life, we do not stop in our pursuit of it. And we will not be satisfied until we have obtained it. Do you truly desire the fruit of the Spirit? You truly desire to be obedient to Christ and be made pleasing to God? Or are you content to simply say that we should and then move on to pursue those things that you actually desire? If I be honest with you today, my prayer life far too often consists way too much of the things that I want things that I hope for, the things that I think would be good, and far too little of those things that I know that God wants for me. May God forgive me and give me the help to joyfully approach him as my father in heaven, to be content knowing that he knows what is good for me, to pray for those things for myself, for my family, for my church, for my community that he has said are good for us and to earnestly desire those things, pursue those things. May he cause my prayer life to show that I am seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, trusting in him to provide everything that I need. May this be true in each of your lives as well, that we all may learn to joyfully and expectantly approach our loving Father in heaven. Father, we do thank you that we can call you Father, that we have been taught to approach you as Father, and that you are more faithful, more wise, more caring than we are. Teach us to trust in you. Teach us to understand your character to have confident faith in who you are. That we would see our good in you. Realize that your son has the words of life and that there is nowhere else to turn. There is no one else to whom we would long to be fed by, cared for by, protected by. Make us faithful. Remove the desires for the things of this world. Be honored in our lives. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.